and welcome to One to Grow On, a show where we dig into questions about agriculture and try to understand how food production impacts us and our world. My name is Hallie Casey, and I studied and currently work in agriculture. And I'm Chris Casey, Hallie's dad. Each episode, we pick an area of agriculture or food production to discuss, and this week, it's bananas. 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 That is what we are discussing. Bananas. The fruit. What do you know about bananas? Dad? I know that bananas are a berry. Do you know that? How? Uh, you have said so on multiple occasions over the course of this <laughs> podcast. Great work. Especially to when we were asked, what is a berry? Or rather, what is berry? Yep. Banana is berry. I also have been reading a book about bananas, but I haven't gotten very far. So I mm-hmm. know there was something about some rich guy forcing people to go into the jungle and build a railroad or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. We'll yep. get to that. Great. Uh, I'm sure it's great. Oh, and and there's like a place in Belgium where they have, they sort of keep all of the different varieties of bananas. That's that's like Banana Central. And oh, con- I don't I don't have that covered in this episode. Okay. Well, great. I know something that you don't. Maybe I can put that in the extra research. Maybe. But that's all I know about it, really. I don't remember exactly where it is or what it's called. But I think it's like the Center for Banana Research or something. And I remember you saying that all bananas are clones. Mm-hmm. At least all the ones we eat, all the Cavendish bananas. Mm-hmm. And you know the word Cavendish. That's something you know about bananas. I do. I got that from the book. Nice. And I guess there are still other bananas, but... I mean, they're all going to die because of some blight anyway, so enjoy them while you can. <laughs> yep. A good summary. We're going to get further into all of those things. So let's start at the very beginning. The banana, the Latin name is Musa, and the family name is Musaceae. So the family is named after the banana because it's like the star of the family. Wait, how is that named after the banana? The family is Musaceae, and the banana's name is Musa. So. You say see. I see. Okay, got it. As you mentioned, the banana is a berry. The banana is also the largest herbaceous flowering plant. Um, so herbaceous meaning never develops woody tissue um, and flowering meaning it has flowers. Typically, they get around 16 feet, but they can get up to 20 to 25 feet tall. So they're a pretty big plant. So if it's a berry, then why do people make cream pie out of it instead of a berry pie out of it? Because you add cream as opposed to a berry pie where you just add sugar. I mean, I think a banana pie with sugar and a little pectin might turn out pretty well. What do you think? Well, you don't put pectin in a berry pie. You just put sugar. Oh, I thought you put pectin in it to make it all gloopy. I have never done that. I've only ever just added sugar to strawberries and then you just dump it in a pie shell and you cook it. Or maybe some tapioca? Mm, I have put tapioca in sometimes, but it's I've never it's not like necessary. I've definitely done it sometimes where it's just sugar and bananas, not bananas and berries. <laughs> and like strawberries and and blueberries and stuff. All right, well I derailed this into wanting to eat pie. So, Mm-hmm. You were saying. Yeah. So that's the basics of the banana. But what actually is the banana? So the root of the banana, the quote unquote root, um, is actually a corm, which is not root tissue, but stem tissue. We've talked about corms in the past. It's modified stem tissue. Um, and then the banana, quote unquote, trunk is not actually a trunk because trunks are woody. And as we mentioned already, it's an herbaceous plant, never develops woody tissue. 
and the the quote unquote trunk of the banana quote unquote tree is actually what's called a pseudo stem. Pseudo stem just means not actually a stem, but looks like a stem. Um, and it's actually made of really tightly compacted leaf tissue. Weird. So it's like one big green thing. Well, most plants are, Dad. So, well, but, yes. But trees are brown in parts of them. And I guess, would you call it like a stalk? Would it be like a stalk? Yeah, stalk is totally a fine word. But usually people say trunk just because it's so big. And that's they're used to saying trunk for a big thing like that. Got it. Whereas like usually think of stalk for like a flower stalk or something. But it is, in fact, more of like a stalk. But you wouldn't chop it down and plop it on the fireplace. Absolutely not. It would not go well. Um, the corm itself is a perennial tissue, but... The rest of the banana is usually not perennial. So when a banana is mature, when it's an adult banana, usually the corm, the stem tissue under the ground, will send up an actual stem, like an actual legitimate stem, as well as an inflorescence, meaning a head of flowers. This is also called the banana heart. Like in the industry, they call it the banana heart, which is lovely. And then usually the above ground structure will die back, like the whole pseudo stem and the leaves and everything. Once you have bananas, you harvest the bananas, the above ground stuff dies back, and then you get new growth from that perennial corm that's under the ground. Cool. Sorry, I'm trying to track. I'm also, I keep rolling the, with the word corm around in my head <laughs> because it's not corn. It's corm, and so I'm, I'm trying to make sure that sticks like a big old stalk. But when it's mature, it grows the heart. It plops up the stem. It grows the heart. Uh, mm -hmm. And then when that's done. When you get the banana. Yeah, you get the banana. Um, banana comes right off. Mm -hmm. uh, it, does it grow another stem? Yeah, so that whole, once once you pop the bananas off, then the above ground stuff is done for the year. So it just like skedaddles and dies back to the ground. And then starting the next year, when it's time for a new banana to grow, it just starts from the ground up, gets like that 16 feet tall. And then once it's nice and tall, you get a new inflorescence that pops up, a new banana, and it just... Year after year, that's how it goes. That is wild. I wanna, I wanna try to find a time lapse of this happening in a in a field of banana trees. Are they called trees? I don't know. Um, they're colloquially called trees. They're okay. not trees, but they're they're called a banana tree. But seeing them grow sixteen feet every year, that's wild. Yeah, they're pretty cool plants. So how many bananas are there? So there are more than 1,000 varieties of bananas in the world that are produced for consumption locally. However, as you mentioned, we really only eat the Cavendish banana. That's the name of the variety, the Cavendish. So are the other varieties just eaten by other people, just not by us in other areas of the world? Is that what it is? It's a lot of like, this is the banana I have next to my house. So this is the banana that I eat. Um, it's just, yeah varieties that are native to different parts of the world and that's what is locally grown but it's not to any commercial production okay so i want you to guess how many cavendish bananas specifically just cavendish bananas not the rest of the other 999 varieties just the cavendish bananas are grown okay so for a baseline we get about 76 million metric tons of apples in 2019 and in oranges, it was about 46.1 million metric tons. So 
If that's apples and oranges, where do you think bananas falls? I'm going to say one billion tons. Why would you go that far? Because <laughs> it sounds funnier than just trying to be accurate. I don't know. Uh, we'll say 200 million tons. 200 million tons when I gave you 76 million and 46 million. Well, you said one billion was like way too high. Yeah, so is 200 million. Now you're really like letting me down. I thought it was a high number and you're like shooting above it. It's 127.3 million. So a lot more than apples and oranges. Well, it is a lot more. And it's still within an order of magnitude-ish, maybe not. But yeah, it's uh, that's a lot. That's, well, okay, more than double oranges, uh, one and a half times about apples. So bananas are like, super popular. They're very popular. As of 2015, bananas were the second most produced fruit by quantity, so not by weight, after watermelons. Jeez Louise. So what is a banana? A banana by any other name would taste as sweet? No, it wouldn't. So I want to talk about the difference between plantains and bananas. What do you know about plantains, Dad? So there's a restaurant not too far from my house that sells fried plantains, and mm -hmm. they look a lot like short bananas, and they're delicious. Is that all you got? That's all I got. Okay, pretty good. A lot of scientists, a lot of banana breeders, marketers argue about what's a plantain versus what's a banana. They're extremely closely related. For our purposes, plantains are much starchier. Plantains are usually cooked, whereas bananas are usually eaten raw, Um the term is also often bandied about like the dessert banana. And that's like what we're talking about. Like the banana is sweet. It's a treat. It's not like part of your meal. Whereas like plantains can be. It goes well in cereal and ice cream. For sure. In terms of nutritional value, the bananas are generally less healthier for you than a plantain. But they're still okay. They have like one fifth of your daily nutritional value for vitamin B6. They have like 17% of your daily nutritional value for vitamin C. They have some potassium in them. They're fine. They're, they're decent. They're an okay little fruit. Uh, but plantains are much healthier. They have 54% of your daily nutritional value for vitamin C. They have 25% of your daily nutritional value for vitamin B6. They've got a whole bunch of good stuff in them. And they are healthier, but less sweet, less desserty. Okay. But I mean, if you have a some fried plantains. They taste pretty sweet, people, I gotta tell you. They're they're a great food. If you can get your hands on them and you never tried them before, would highly recommend. I mean, if I had some right now, I would eat them and take a break. Shall we do that? Shall we go take a break? Yes. So there is some time between which we recorded this particular episode and this particular mid-roll. And in that stretch of time, I had some fried plantains, and they were so good. I love them. They're the best Peruvian roast chicken side that I've ever had, that's for sure. This episode, we actually wanted to encourage all of our listeners, particularly those who are U.S. citizens, to register to vote the deadline to register here in Texas is coming up in October, but you can go to youtube.com slash how to vote in every state to learn more about how to register where you are. We are lucky, even though it doesn't always feel that way, to live somewhere where we do have a voice in our representation. And so please, let's use it. 
register to vote, and then vote. You know who I'm sure votes? Who is that? Our patrons, especially our Starfruit patrons, Vikram, Lindsay, Mama Casey, Patrick, and Cheyenne. And Cheyenne, you guys are so incredible. You keep our world spinning, and we are so, so grateful for you. It's true. But now, back to the episode. Back to the episode. Dad, do you have a nature fact for us? I do. So, there is a, uh, like in many other cities, there's a marathon in Barcelona. Mm -hmm. And the fastest marathon ever run by a competitor dressed as a fruit Ah! was two hours, 58 minutes, and 20 seconds recorded at the Barcelona Marathon on March 6, Mm -hmm. 2011. His name was Patrick Whiteman from the UK, and he was dressed as a banana. God bless Patrick Whiteman. Right. Doing Can you some imagine? great work in Barcelona. Yeah. And I, I looked up a picture of him. And I mean, it looks like one of those big felt banana costumes. And I can't ima- I Ooh. can't imagine running 26 miles anyway. But 26 miles in a big old banana costume. And you're already kind of hot and sweaty as it is. Man, that thing had to be rank. Yeah. I mean, that's that's commitment to... Breaking a record, but I admire it. Yes. Great nature fact, Dad. Thank you. Oh, you got to do the jingle. Yeah, I was about to. I was just giving you a compliment. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's important to be supportive like that. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Nature fact. Nature fact. Okay, so let's talk about the history of the banana. All right. When I was researching this, I found a lot of conflicting origin stories. Um, the banana has been around for a really long time, and it's kind of unclear where it originated, like thousands of years ago. Okay. And um, real quick, when we say mm-hmm. originated, obviously, it's a plant that's existed, but the banana in its current form was kind of bred by people to right. have these characteristics. Right, like the broader banana plant, not specifically the Cavendish. The broader banana plant, like how did that evolve? Got it. Where did that come from? Where is that native to? I couldn't find a lot. Um, I, could, I couldn't find like a specific origin story. I found a paper in the Journal of Ethnobotany Research and Applications that said that the reason for this was because because it is vegetatively propagated. And they talked about like sweet potatoes as another example of this. Um the banana isn't leaving a lot of like pollen and they're also herbaceous. So they're not leaving like wood or seeds or nuts for us to like look back in like the history of soil of a region, maybe of like a fossil record to really like see where, where is this thing evolving? So that might be one of the reasons why we don't have a very specific origin story for the banana plant evolution. Okay. Yeah. The tissues too soft to stick around for too long. Yeah. That same paper estimated that 87% of banana production globally is for local food consumption, which was citing an article from Biodiversity International. I couldn't find that article from Biodiversity International, but I think that the point is still totally valid. Whether or not that 87% number is still accurate today, it's a really key crop for subsistence farmers. I'm going to go on and talk about the history of like large-scale production of bananas, but Bananas and plantains, this 
this plant specifically, like this species, is really important for subsistence farmers around the world in a lot of the global south. So a really important thing to just remember as we go on to talk about the large-scale production of banana plants. And are you, are you going to talk about why or is it just important to them because it's such either A, an important cash crop or B, it's an actual source of nutrition for them? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's mostly the latter. Uh, it's quite common to have banana plants like nearby a house, but not necessarily in a big field. Bananas are a really difficult crop to market, which we're going to talk about. They're quite fragile as opposed to something like yams or rice or you know a lot of other larger scale crops that you see subsistence farmers um, being able to market beyond just home consumption. Bananas are, are not easy in that same way. You need a lot of cold storage. You need a lot of packaging and you really need a developed supply chain. Um, but they are quite nutritious, particularly like the hardier plantain plants are really nutritious. Um, and they're pretty easy to grow. Most places in the global south, um, they have been in a lot of the global south for a really long time. Like they've been in South America and Latin America. They've been in Africa and they've been in um, Southern Asia for a long time. So it's something that's common in cultural recipes. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's often just like nearby the house. You're able to mash it up or include it in some dish, but it's mostly for home consumption. Got it. So let's talk about the history of bananas in not the global south, in Europe and the U.S. Up until we had wider spread refrigeration, it was just pretty much a luxury food in the U.S. and Europe. And this is true for a lot of these perishable crops. If you couldn't get them on a ship across the ocean, then only the richy riches could really afford to get them. Okay. Around the turn of the century, you had two companies, Standard Fruit and United Fruit, that took over large swaths of land in Central and South America and very quickly ramped up production and built demand in the U.S. So they were really building demand once that refrigeration technology existed, um, really introducing this fruit that nobody had any idea what it was, how to eat it, and really making that demand from basically nothing. This is where that story you were talking about, uh, about the guy with the railroad track came in. There was this guy, Miner C. Keith. He ended up being the CEO of United Fruit, which is one of these two large companies. Um, and he was from Brooklyn, moved down to Costa Rica to help out with his uncle's railroad project, um, ended up planting a lot of bananas or having his workers plant, I should say, bananas while he was doing this railroad project um, and found out that the railroad he was building was not terribly profitable, but was building this demand to be able to sell these bananas back in the U.S. And now he had this newly built railroad for extremely cheap um, and was basically exploiting the Costa Rican government to control large areas of land around his railroad. So it became really easy for him to uh, continue to exploit the workers he was already employing to build that railroad once the railroad was built to produce a lot of bananas. And then he had this really cheap railroad that was already built, getting them back up to the U.S. I got really like down a rabbit hole with a lot of this history. It's very intense. Um, 
And I don't think I have time to go super in depth with all of the stories and all of the histories on this. I'm going to put more info on the Patreon under the extra research. So um, if you want to learn more, you can go there. But I do think it's important to talk about this history. So bananas got very cheap in the US. And to this day, they're pretty cheap fruit. That means that production costs are really, really cheap, right? If you have a cheap fruit, then you have to have cheaper production costs. The way that these companies, Standard Fruit and United Fruit, achieved this is they had very tight control on these foreign governments and the land within them. Um, It basically became what I saw described as like a neo-feudal system where a handful of very powerful companies exploited Central American countries and Central American laborers and also benefited from government grants and tax breaks while all the time denying their Central American workforce a living wage or basic rights. This is where the term banana republic comes from. These companies were granted huge amounts of land in Central America. Some of it was, quote unquote, bought, but a lot of it was not. Um, And these land grants were often in exchange for, or sometimes it was like tax breaks or government grants in exchange for building privately owned infrastructure, um, like roads, that was meant to benefit the very communities that they were actually exploiting. Eventually, um, there became a lot of organized labor protests around these poor working conditions. Companies used extreme force using either private militia forces, that the, the national military of those countries, or in some specific cases, actual U.S. forces um, under the guise of combating communism to fight these labor protests um, and basically punish, kill, assault the labor forces that were striking and the people that were striking and protesting in solidarity with them. There's a lot more in like information about the history of U.S. involvement in Central America under the guise of anti-communist propaganda that looking with, you know, historical view seems extremely, extremely linked to United Fruit and Standard Fruit's interests. I, I saw this really good quote um, from Dan Koppel. Who, it was an interview with Dan Koppel, who's the guy who That's wrote- That's the guy that wrote the book I'm reading. Exactly. Yeah. He wrote the, the book, Banana, The Fate of the Fruit That Changed the World. In this interview, he said, the banana is an impossible export fruit. It's fragile. It ripens quickly. It gets rotten fast. And the way to do it is to make it so cheap that your money is made on volume. So they were trying to just produce as many bananas as possible at as cheap a cost as possible in order to get any return back. Um, and that, and they, they got millions and millions of dollars in profits, um, but that was all made at the cost of these people's lives and their dignity and their human rights. So I assume we're going to get to sort of the current state Mm-hmm. Of the banana. Okay. Then I'll I'll wait for I'll hold my questions until we get to that point. <laughs> okay. I know that was like a big a big dump. I told you I did like I got a, a, I really went into research. This took me like three times as long as it usually takes me to research an episode about this. Because I really wanted to do it justice while also trying to keep it within the scope of the episode and the time that we have here today. Sure. Um in in the nineteen hundreds 
the U.S. ended up bringing multiple antitrust lawsuits against Standard Fruit and United Fruit Company. Um, so we did end up seeing changes both from those uh, those lawsuits, that litigation, as well as from um, the labor movement from Central America. Eventually, um, in like the the 60s, 70s, um, the or I, th- I think it was closer to the 50s and 60s. I might have my dates wrong there, but the companies ended up changing their names, and Standard Fruit became Dole, and United Fruit became Chiquita. Today, in the the 2010s, this is a 2013 numbers. Um, five companies own 44 percent of the banana industry, down from 70 percent in 2002. A lot of this was because of the movement that was started really in the 80s for multinational companies to divest land holdings in Central America for bananas and replace company production with independently produced bananas. So larger companies are, instead of producing the bananas themselves, they're buying from local people who produce the bananas. Right. Okay. And so that was kind of, I guess, leading into to my questions is, the banana is still, like you said, very, very cheap. Mm-hmm. Therefore, methods of production must still be very, very cheap. So mm-hmm. have labor conditions and such things improved? So one of the tricky things about having more independent production, which don't get me wrong, is a good thing. Um, you do also have a harder time having generalized statements, right? Because it's not five companies that are producing all of the world's bananas. Right. So yes, um, largely speaking, there are improvements in labor conditions. That is not universally true across the board. A lot of the changes we've seen are in like technological um, changes, particularly in post-harvest technology. So it's easier to transport bananas without them going bad as fast. Okay. So here's the thing. We have talked about the Cavendish banana. The bananas that we were just talking about in the last segment about like the 1900s was not the Cavendish banana. Right. What? I knew that. Sorry. Oh, you did? (laughs) I'm not shocked. Yeah, I think I got this from the book. Uh, There's sort of speculation on what the, what our grandparents you know, and great-grandparents tasted when they tasted a banana at the turn of the century and in the early 1900s. Right. So the banana that was grown in the first half of the 1900s was the Gros Michel. This was very similar to the Cavendish in a lot of ways. It was seedless. It grew via clones. However, in 1903, a strain of fusarium wilt called Panama disease first appeared and started taking out these gross Michel plants like crazy. And that's what, like a fungus? It's like a fungus. It is indeed like a fungus. It's not just like a fungus. It is a fungus. Okay. By 1960, the gross Michel was commercially extinct. So like you said, we don't really... No, like there's not a lot of people who tasted this plant because by like the 1940s, it was very hard to find. It was much less common to see bananas. And it wasn't really until like onto the 70s when we started to see bananas becoming more common. So there was not really a lot of comparisons ever. Um, You didn't ever have like the Grus Michel and the Cavendish in the same room at the same time where you could say, 
here are the differences between these two bananas. So yeah, there's a lot of speculation on what is different between these two bananas. The companies, um, particularly Dole, once it started to see Panama disease like pop up and become an issue, started investing a lot of time in searching around for commercially viable bananas. The thing about bananas is that because for thousands of years people have been selecting against seeds in bananas, right? Nobody wants seeds in bananas, even us, and nobody has for thousands of years. It's actually really difficult to get a seeded banana. And that means it's really difficult to breed bananas. So basically what these companies were doing was just like traversing the globe and examining all the bananas and trying to categorize them and see if they were marketable, if they were tasty, if they were easy to ship, if they had that lovely long yellow look of what we expect now from a banana, and if they were resistant to Panama disease. So eventually they found the Cavendish. Wow. So I thought the sort of long, vague, skinny brown bits in the middle were banana seeds, only you just couldn't really tell that they were seeds because they were squishy like the rest of the fruit. Did someone lie mm-hmm. to me? Were they wrong? Do the Have all the bananas that I've been eating been seedless? Yeah, so bananas are essentially seedless. None of those seeds that we actually eat in the bananas are viable ever. I see. Um, Those are basically like the relics of what were once seeds and like the great, 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 great grandfather of a banana. Okay, wow. Once upon a time, the banana had a seed and now these itsy bitsy little tiny seeds are what we have. It's the same thing like if you eat a seedless grape and there's like those little tiny guys in there. They're not hard and crunchy. and They're really, really small. You can't plant a grape plant with it, but it's what the seeds once were. Okay. And so you can't plant a banana tree with a banana. No. Yeah. They're all clones. They're all vegetatively produced. Got it. And that's been the case for thousands of years. So it's hard to breed bananas because how we breed plants is we cross-pollinate and cross-pollinate and cross-pollinate and eventually something new pops out. We can't do that with bananas. So eventually they found the Cavendish. It was more fragile than Gros Michel, actually. The Gros Michel, like there, there are videos of people like having big bunches of Gros Michel bananas and just like throwing them onto a ship. We can't do that with the Cavendish. You got to put it in a box. You got to put the box on the ship. Otherwise, they get all bruised and brown and consumers are, you know, not so interested. But for a long time, it was good. Life was good. We had a banana that we liked and everything was looking up for these banana companies. For a long time, you say? For a long time. Until the 1980s. So really for like 20-ish years. I feel like there were so many good things that changed for the worse in the 1980s, but that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) So in the 1980s, Panama disease reappeared. It was very similar to the first Panama disease, but it was a different strand, kind of like different strands of flu viruses. Okay. This second fungus strand, the second disease strand, arrived and started to affect Cavendish bananas. The bananas got their own pandemic. Pretty much. Not to be a downer. I told you guys we wouldn't talk anymore about the P word or the C word. Oops, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Uh, We saw a lot of bananas being wiped out in Southern Asia that were Cavendish bananas. Um, We don't have it yet in the Americas. 
It hasn't gotten here yet, just by luck of the draw. I read the only place in the U.S. that bananas were grown was Hawaii. Yeah, no, I mean the Americas, like not just oh, the Oh, like USA. in the whole, sorry. Central America and Colombia, my, my yeah. Ethnocentrism, ethnocentrism coming out right there, but okay, the whole Western Hemisphere, basically. Yeah, the fungus will arrive at some point. If the world has learned anything about epidemiology in the last six months, it's that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. One day, the Panama disease will reach Central America, and it will basically wipe out every last Cavendish banana, and it will happen very quickly. Okay. And what do we do then? We just don't have any more banana splits? So I saw this good quote in an interview with Alan Brown Balana, I think is how you say his last name. He's a biologist with the Institute of Tropical Agriculture. He said, they dodged a bullet in the 1950s by identifying Cavendish. I think if there was something out there, they would have found it by now. So these companies like didn't stop looking when they found Cavendish. They were like, just in case, we better find something else. Or like, what if we find something else that's easier to grow or like sweeter and easier to sell? But they just haven't found it yet. They haven't found it yet, which means it probably doesn't exist. Also, if they did find something, the banana supply chain is built custom for the Cavendish. Every single banana is genetically identical, meaning it's almost identical. They look almost exactly the same. The only thing that changes between bananas is like where they're grown, like how they're grown, what the temperature is. So bananas are the same size. Bananas are the same shape. Bananas need exactly the same temperature, the exact same gas mixture. The whole supply chain is built specifically for the Cavendish. So even if they did find another banana, it would not be easy to just like, well, okay, we'll just add this banana into our whole process. We would have to completely restructure the supply chain. So that would be a huge lift. Like we talked about earlier, resistance can't really be bred, right? Because we've got no seeds to breed. There is one hope, and it is a GMO banana. Oh, boy. So there are some GMO bananas. There is still work being done on a GMO banana because we are just waiting for the rest of the Cavendish bananas to go extinct. Not the banana plant, to be clear. The banana as a species will live on. But the Cavendish banana, which is marketable, will die off. At some point, it could happen tomorrow. We don't know when it will happen. So there is work being done on a GMO banana. But at one point, at some point in the future, there will be no banana for you to buy at the grocery store other than a GMO banana. So the banana, as we know it, is, I guess, basically doomed. It's just a matter of time. So enjoy them while you can. And if you want viable, healthy crops... For a very long time, don't base your entire economic structure on clones. Yeah. I saw last quote. It's a three-quote episode. Um, This quote from Randy Plotz, who's a professor of plant pathology at the University of Florida. I don't know if he meant for it to be a little poem, but when he said it, it rhymed, and I love it. So his his little poem quote was, Once the pathogen is established, that's all she wrote for Cavendish. Also, there's a guy named Balana that studies the banana. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of One to Grow On. This show is made by me, Hallie Casey, and Chris Casey. Our music is Something Elated by Broke for Free. If you'd like to connect with us, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at One to Grow On Pod. 
or join our Discord and Facebook communities and leave us your thoughts on this episode. You can find all of our episodes and transcripts as well as information about the team and the show on our website, onetogrowonpod.com. Help us take root and grow organically by recommending the show to your friends or consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash onetogrowonpod. There, you can get access to audio extras, fascinating follow-ups, exclusive bonus content, and boxes of our favorite goodies. If you like the show, please share it with a friend. Sharing is the best way to help us reach more ears. Be sure to see what's sprouting in two weeks. But until then, keep on growing.